note. It says, can you please speak about working with temperature, especially very chilly temps during practice? Well, stay indoors. Thing. As I said, the Tibetans practice uh, tumult where they put ice-cold sheets on their bodies and dry them. Just uh, kind of playing around, I guess, you know, learning some powers. <laughs> the inner heat. That's what we're looking for, the inner heat. I wanted to uh, begin tonight by saying what a privilege it is to, uh, to teach this Dharma and to be with all of you and watch you over the course of a retreat, even a short one like this, as you, you begin to settle and there actually sometimes there are smiles on your faces when I look out there, or kind of some kind of awe. And uh, I know many of you are still struggling, and you know struggles come and go in practice, even after 35 years. I still have problems, <laughs> but it's it's just such a delight to see and I, I think there was a moment today when everyone was just or lots of you were really just uh, tasting the freedom that comes from having mindfulness having a, a calmed and uh, alert mind and the, the kind of lightness in your being that that can bring that kind of buoyancy you're not weighed down by the millennia biological history or or your own history. So uh, I'm really happy to be here. We are collectively trying to learn a new way to use our, our minds and our hearts. Robert Thurman says that Buddhist meditation is an evolutionary sport. I really like that definition because it's sort of like, okay, we take what we're given, what's given to us, which is this body and this mind, this moment in the history of consciousness, and we accept it, but we see if we can't improve upon it. And the first thing that we are assigned to do, really, is to get to know ourselves better. To really investigate this question of who we are. That's the number one spiritual question. Who am I? Socrates said, know thyself. The, uh, the Japanese Zen monks have, have some colorful ways of framing the question, who is it that drags this corpse around? <laughs> who is it that goes out of these six sense doors, in and out? What was your original face before you were born? Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> 
the Hindu Advaita masters uh, would say, who is it that's asking this question? Who am I? <laughs> kind of pushing you back continually against yourself. The Buddha said, true happiness comes from eliminating the false conceit of I or self. I heard a radio story the other day, or actually it was months ago, but it was talking about identity theft. And I thought, take my identity, leave the cash, take it. Because at the core of our individual and collective malaise, I think, is a extreme kind of individualism. The stories in our heads are all about our personal drama. We live in what uh, the psycho-historian Philip Cushman called a bounded, masterful self, thinking that we are in control, that we are autonomous. I talked last night, or two nights ago, a little bit about not having what the anthropologists call the participation mystique, a sense of belonging to tribe or nature or history. It's uh, important, I think, to realize that it didn't always feel this way, to be somebody. That this may not be necessarily normal or even expected the clothing of the self was not always this tight what it means to be a self has its own history Rollo May American psychologist wrote Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Evidence from uh, analysis of early Greek literature indicates that they thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods. Now we think that all the voices in our heads are our own voices which is its own kind of schizophrenia, its own kind of uh, exclusionary realm. Now, the sense of self, I mean, it, it's not necessarily bad. All life has a, a sense of its own integrity and uh, a sense of itself as... Uh, as um, distinct from the world, single-celled being, as I said the other night, has little membrane. It extends it when there's pleasure, it retracts it when there's threats. All forms of life have a sense of self. It's not necessarily bad, but we have come to an extreme where we don't understand ourselves as co-arising with all these other processes. We understand it, we know it, to be true, but we don't feel it. 
I think we are we're living in a time where, where the self has, has grown out of balance. Our sense of self is out of balance. We live in, in this land of personalized license plates. I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> I, I think I mentioned the first use of the word individualism in a book by Alex de Tocqueville, 1835. He wrote, The meaning of one's life for most Americans is to become one's own person, almost to give birth to oneself. That was in 1835. We, we feel ourselves, I think, to a large degree, independent of any outside uh, influences or forces. Nobody says God willing anymore. We think we control our destiny, and that is a, I mean, totally. And that is really a setup for uh, sorrow and failure and self-recrimination and self-criticism. Robert Bell, in his famous book, Habits of the Heart, wrote, The ethos of American individualism is to seek radical private validation. To find our singular place, not our collective place, not our place in the collective, but our singular place. We've come to live in what is called the culture of narcissism. And it's ironic because as we drown in our self-dramas, our civilization science tells us that we are part of these grand projects, these grand experiments. Evolution. You know, you're part of the team. The cosmos, this unfolding of billions of galaxies, that's part of you too. Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a, rock, a cloud, once I was a rock. This is not poetry, this is science. The Hindus like to say, thou art that, and they point in any direction. Thou art that. <laughs> Science tells us we're in the story of planet Earth. We're earthlings. Nobody ever gives that as part of their identity, you know, when you're filling out a form. <laughs> If they found life in another galaxy, then we might have to become galaxy identified and be Milky Wayans, perhaps. <laughs> but science is telling us that we're part of these grand stories, and yet that information lies kind of rusting in our neocortex. It doesn't become wisdom. It doesn't get integrated. It doesn't become our everyday experience at all. I mean, I'm particularly struck by the fact that I believe in evolution. And yet I really have to make some effort to feel myself part of evolution. I, I can do that in meditation. I know I have a lizard brain. And I can feel it in meditation. I, I know it, I, I've given it a name. Izzy. <laughs> 
And it's in there. And, you know, the story of evolution is our autobiography, every one of us. And also, uh, we're part of the human story, a member of this particular species at a particular moment. And we get to be, as, as Kurt Vonnegut said, you know, one of these extremely lucky pieces of the universe that gets to sit up and wonder at itself and investigate itself and understand that it is part of all these big stories. That is our, our genius and uh, our gift to realize that we're not separate. It brings me great relief when I, when I feel myself as part of the big picture as we may have gotten a taste of some of you today. It's like stepping and sometimes walking around the hills here at Spirit Rock. I, I feel like that little guy in the Chinese landscape painting, you know? The big sky and the big hills and he's barely, you can barely see him. You have to get with a microscope to see him. It's wonderful to see yourself in the big picture. The Buddha told his son Rahula, if you take a teaspoon of salt and put it in a glass of water, the water will get salty. But if you put it in the Ganges, it won't affect it at all. (laughs) There's a great DNA t-shirt from Santa Cruz. It has on it a picture of a banana. It says... We share 25% of our DNA with bananas. Get, get over yourself. <laughs> but the question is, how do we turn all the new information we have about who we are in the scheme of things? Because these are new stories. These are, you know, stories are 100, 200 years old about our new place in the cosmos and our new understanding. How do we integrate this new understanding into our, the core of our being and have it inform our behavior and the way we treat each other and the, the planet? Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible, we need a new experience of what it means to be I. And the Buddha was teaching about that. The core of his teaching Understanding yourself. And he, he was really a biologist, you know. He didn't talk about uniting with cosmic consciousness or, you know. Uh, he said you really want to understand yourself, go in here, in this fathom-long body. That's where all the information you need will lie and the transformation. Because the body, this, this, this life, this organism is very accessible to us. You know, it's kind of like abstract, a little hard to kind of connect with the huge picture, but here it all is. And here's the story of evolution, too. You can find that in here. And he he told us, as as a biologist, he told us to bring, develop this quality of mindfulness, which in itself is a gift that lies dormant in most people. Uh, this ability to step outside of your own psyche and your own uh, 
biology and observe yourself. I mean, I was, I was 26 years old when I first did my first retreat. I had a degree from a good college and done some therapy and stuff, but nobody in my culture had told me about this power of mindfulness and how you can access it and develop it and, and it opens up the whole uh, of your being to you. I, you know, I discovered that mindfulness is sort of like a therapist. You know, it just kind of sits there and listens to you, you babbling on, and occasionally it nods and says, uh-huh, what else? <laughs> you don't have to pay it a couple hundred bucks an hour. So the Buddha said, develop this mindfulness and bring it into the body and place it, observe the breath in the body. Explore it. Feel it. What does it speak? What does it say to you? How do you, how do you relate to that? You start to see, first of all, that your, your breath isn't, you aren't controlling it. It's just, it's happening there. If you uh, hold your breath, try to stop it, you'll pass out and breath will continue. You know, it's like life got into you and has determined that you will live as long as it wants to keep going. I think that my identity began to shift with my awareness of breath. I really began to feel it as a sign of life and really understood that, uh, okay, what's my basic identity? Alive. I am one of the live ones. And that that's, that unites me with a whole bunch of other beings. That is something I hold in common with gazillions of beings. And it's a mysterious thing. And as I watch my breath, I mean, it's sort of like I can see the whole mystery of creation happening every few seconds right here. I can feel it. We get about 15 million in an average lifetime. 15 million breaths. Do you know what million you're working on? <laughs> but we usually are so identified with the thoughts, the story. Similar shifts of identity have happened in regard to my body. And uh, the second foundation of mindfulness, which is Vedana Upasana, meditation on sensations of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. My first teacher was S.N. Goenka. We would practice this body scan technique, which is a really a meditation focusing on sensations as the object of meditation, as the primary object. And we would be there just moving our minds through our body over and over again. And Goenka would be sitting up in front in the big baritone voice he had. Ah, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, impermanent, everything is impermanent. And you'd start to feel the body after a while, the, the sensations would become finer and finer. You would feel 
finer and finer sensations. It start out kind of gross and soreness and lumps and and then pretty soon it was just effervescent. You really, I really began to realize this body is a process and not a thing. And that was a great new understanding for me. It's sort of like understanding physics by getting inside of yourself and investigating the particles. I mean, in physics they say, you know, everything's in process. Nothing, nothing is not moving. Nothing is not changing in every moment. And you really can feel it when you begin to experience it in the body, in your own being, it, it changes the way the mind feels. You can hear about impermanence and you know, subatomic particles transforming trillions of times a second, and it won't make any difference to your wisdom until you actually can experience that kind of change happening inside of you. That meditation also, I think I talked about the other night, really made me aware of instincts and the instinctual nature that we all inherit of wanting pleasure, pleasant sensations and disliking unpleasant sensations and how that basic relationship pulls and pushes us through the world, you know. Uh, we're slaves to it unless we see it and can gain some understanding and some control or some mastery over it. We're always running after pleasure and running away from pain. Of course, you, uh, at your own risk, you, you <laughs> let go of those instincts. It make you sign a uh, release form. But I think the real shift has come because as I became more intimate with my body, and it, you know, at times it was just deadly boring, and, you know, just there's the breath, and there's the sensations, and there's, you know, give me a break. You know, after hours and hours and retreat after retreat, I started to wonder, you know, what, what it was all about. And then I realized at, at some point in my practice, that I was really becoming, I was really shifting my sense of self out of the psychological and into the biological. I was shifting out of the story of my life into the fact of my life. And I liked it a lot. <laughs> I liked the fact of my life. And it made me feel connected to other beings that live. And it, uh, released a lot of the sort of suffocation of being that individual with his individual story sort of uh, set over and apart from all the other individual stories. The Buddha said, this body doesn't belong to me or anyone else. It has arisen due to past causes and conditions. You think he and Darwin should get together and kind of talk a little? This body does not belong to me or anyone else. It has arisen due to past causes and conditions, he says, and 
He continues, for now it should be felt. I like to think that this body and reflect upon the fact that this body was built of all the life that came before. We inherit this entire process of all the beings that have come before us. You know, you look at other beings and you see that we have a similar floor plan, you know, a head at one end, limbs growing, uh, you know, long, elongated body, limbs coming out. They've now found that we actually share these, what they're calling toolbox genes, with all sorts of other species, and that you can take the gene that tells a, a, a bird to grow wings or a frog to grow its legs or, and put them into our bodies, uh, our embryos, and they'll, they'll grow. Well, actually, the experiment was not done on humans. It was done. <laughs> we're, talking, we're talking fruit flies and frogs and mice and things. But, but that, that they work, these same genes work on the different species. Um, Heads. We're very, very identified with our heads, right? <laughs> this big lump of flesh and bone that sits up here on top of our skull. Uh, the first heads were developed by these little marine creatures who started to grow little clumps, extra clumps of cells around their mouth so they could manipulate their mouth better. And then well, you want to catch the food better, so the senses started growing up around the little head, you know, the little eyes and the ears and the nose and the... Basically, your head is there, the better to eat with, you know, it's <laughs> the whole mechanism. <laughs> it just helps to sort of demystify this whole, <laughs> this whole thing. And uh, our, our spines, the first vertebrate, were uh, worms. These worms that developed a spine. And do we ever thank them? No. <laughs> but I, I mean, now there's an identity for you. Nobody ever thinks of their identity as a vertebrate. Say it loud. I'm a vertebrate and I'm proud. <laughs> But we are, we are closely related to all other beings and, and they're finding the DNA is just astonish, astonishing that, you know, we share, it's common knowledge, we share 98.6% or something like that of our DNA with the great apes, uh, chimpanzees. Uh, but we share over 90% of our DNA with mice. And the reason is most of the information for building and maintaining you is information for building a basic mammal. It takes a lot of information to construct this thing, you know, and it's a blueprints, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of volumes of information are encoded inside of every one of your trillions of cells. The numbers, I mean, we can just get drowned in the, in the numbers, but all that information is primarily to build a basic uh, mammal with a big forebrain and uh, a biped. And uh, our individual differences, and uh, this is a, 
you know, just uh, on this narrow measurement of DNA, but I think it's uh, informative. We share 9.99999% of our DNA with each other. It's the same, it's the same stuff. Why can't we get along? Another shift in, in sort of my identity and what my understanding of myself concerns the third foundation of mindfulness, which is chitta nupasana, which is mind states or mo- emotions. And um, I, over the years, have, have begun to realize that really we live by our emotions and that thought is often afterthought. And when you really start to pay attention, you see how the reactions begin to happen before you are even conscious of them, let alone have time to label them or think about them. You become aware that that's really the level uh, upon which so much of our behavior is based. Uh, Reactions to stimuli by the organism, when they come into consciousness, are what we call emotions. They exist in all animals, but when they come into consciousness, we call them emotions. And most of them are based on the four Fs. Feeding, fighting, fleeing, or (laughs) sexual reproduction. And that that is really the core of what those are about. But as you begin to meditate, as you you do more and more practice, you really become tuned with the emotional life of of your being and realize that that's what's leading in the dance. And when you begin to catch the beginnings of emotions, that's when you realize that you can have a choice that you can you can uh, deny the instinct to react in a certain way and you can choose a different path. I talked uh, the other night about a lot about temperament and so I won't do any of that. Um, The fourth foundation... Oh, let me just say this about emotions. In, in the Buddha's uh, description of the third foundation of mindfulness, the mind states or emotions, he doesn't moralize, he doesn't... Uh, it's very simple. He, it's, a, it's the shortest little description of, of any of the four foundations of mindfulness. He basically just says, when there is lust in the mind, know that there is lust in the mind. When there is anger in the mind, know that there is anger in the mind. That's the whole instruction. That's, that's the gate to understanding. Just watch it. Watch your mind and know when, when, when those things are there, when they're arising. So the fourth foundation, Dhammas, 
Dhammanupassana, it's interpreted in a number of ways, but it has to do with all the aspects of cognition and understanding and mind stuff, thoughts. It's a common misunderstanding among beginning meditators that the, the purpose of meditation is to get rid of thoughts and empty the mind. But that's not really it. It's, it's to expose the mind to itself. Thoughts in and of themselves are neutral. I mean, you know, they can be just wisps of nothing and they can be things that we should probably pay attention to. And thought is our genius as a species. You know, I mean, we have come to this brilliant system of agreeing on certain labels for things and, and uh, creating meaning out of uh, these sounds we make and understanding them and we're able to pass information to each other and to future generations. I mean, it's fabulous uh, adaptation. It's allowed us to do all you know, create civilizations and learn meditation. But we've become so identified with, with, with thinking. You know, Descartes, I think therefore I am. I think he should have said, I think therefore I think I am. <laughs> We think that what we think is so unique, but actually, you know, I don't think it is. If you exchange your mind with a person sitting next to you and they watched your mind for a while, (laughs) it'd be basically the same stories. Love and loss and finances and future and regret and family and, you know, it's basically the same stories. 20,000 years ago, probably basically the same stories, you know. What color should I paint my spear? Who's who's watching the fire tonight? And, you know, basically the same stuff. We believe that as a species, thought makes us superior. This is Charles Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Stephen Jay Gould says, you don't see an octopus running around being so proud of its eight arms, you know? (laughs) And what's really interesting is that Buddha saw thinking like that. He saw thinking as just a sixth sense. It was a way of perceiving and understanding the world, but no different really than sight or sound. Or, he called it the sixth, uh, a sixth sense. One of the great gifts of meditation is, is to change your relationship to your mind, to your, to your thinking mind. It's been... Uh, one of the major shifts in my life, this relationship with my, with my thinking mind, we're still friends, but uh, we're no longer codependent, you know? <laughs> this is Tulku Ergen, the Tibetan sage. The stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person without any question about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, or where the thought disappears. 
The person is total, totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. You're familiar with this. You have begun to see it. And see how caught up you get in these patterns of thinking. How identified and lost. Pulling you out of a moment, pulling you out of an experience of presence, an experience of possibly joy, delight, because you're lost in thought. Uddhasa, the famous Thai monk, a famous Thai monk was asked to describe the world. He said, lost in thought. As we explore our thinking mind, we start to realize that our thinking is not always self-created. It's not, you know, you're, you, you're determined to watch your breath and these thoughts keep coming and coming. And you realize the mind has a mind of its own. As Marvin Minsky, a brain uh, neurologist and uh, cognitive scientist, I should say, says, not only can we walk without thinking, we can think without thinking. And in meditation, you begin to see these patterns and the thinking and how it happens and realize that you can choose. You don't have to go along with everything that your mind presents to you. You start to gain some freedom. It's very exciting. This is Ajahn Chah, famous Thai monk. Lots of famous Thai monks tonight. Ajahn Chah says, the Buddha saw that whatever the mind gives rise to are just transitory conditioned phenomena, which are really empty. When this dawned on him, he let go and found an end to suffering. The true nature of mind is free, shining, resplendent. The mind becomes occupied only because it misunderstands and is deluded by these mental phenomena, this false sense of self. So, as we look at the fourth foundation, we begin to break that total identification we have with the thinking mind. And as we explore and experience our body and our breath and our emotions and, and really begin to, to get, understand ourselves better, we, we begin to find that happiness of uh, eliminating the false conceit of I or self. And we begin to sense ourselves as much more than we ever thought we were. You're just a tiny little story when you're here. But when you, when you start to understand yourself better, you realize you're much more than all that. I think that also as we come to see ourselves as part of the life of this planet, I'm very interested in how we can incorporate the story of evolution and meditation to, to really gain more and more of a sense of ourselves as part of the life of this planet so that we will take better care of it, that we will understand that we co-arise with this atmosphere, with all these other beings, and that you know, we're living through the fifth or sixth largest species die-off in biological history and that we really have to shift how we behave and how we live in the world and find our satisfaction somewhere else 
And our satisfaction can be found in here rather than out there. So we won't consume so much or try to twist the world into some shape that makes us feel comfortable for a little while. So that this experiment can continue. You know, it's a pretty fascinating experiment uh, that we're involved in. And I think when we, I, I like to, to put it in that story of evolution because I, it makes me feel like we're all doing this together. We're doing it as a, 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 a sangha of humans. We are attempting to awaken in time to, not only to ease our suffering now, here and now, but in time perhaps to salvage uh, something from our current destructive ways. The Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, when he was challenged by Mara, the evil god who wanted to get him off his throne because he knew Buddha was going to claim freedom and uh, teach the world how to gain freedom. Mara kept tempting him, but the Buddha wouldn't leave his seat. Finally, Mara said, what right do you have? What right do you have to be enlightened? And the Buddha just reached down and touched the earth. That was his witness. And I like to interpret that as, as him saying, this earth grew my consciousness. I was born out of this mother. And it nurtured me. And this is part of my story is this story. And uh, I think that's part of all of our story, and I think that's part of what we're learning here as we understand ourselves better and as we, we break out of this conceit of I. Let me finish with a poem. My favorite old poem, old poem by Theodore Rethke. The waking. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. I feel my fate in what I cannot fear. I learn by going where I have to go. We think by feeling. What is there to know? I hear my being dance from ear to ear. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. Of those so close beside me, which are you? God bless the ground. I shall walk softly there and learn by going where I have to go. Light takes the tree, but who can tell us how? The lowly worm climbs up a winding stair. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. Great nature has another thing to do to you and me. So take the lively air and lovely Learn by going where to go. This shaking keeps me steady. I should know. What falls away is always and is near. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. I learn by going where I have to go.
Thank you for awakening with me and with our whole team.